1: A few people have asked us our position on recent events and why we haven't made a statement about them yet. We felt it was time to address that. Astonishing Legends is an entertainment platform, and that's why we never discuss politics or much of the news unless it's directly related to the topics we cover. Believe it or not, Forrest and I are both pretty private people, and we also share a belief that nobody wants or needs to hear our unsolicited opinions on anything other than something related to the topics we cover on the show. After 179 episodes, it's reasonably clear what our thoughts, beliefs, and values are. We also recognize that with a show of our size, though, there's a responsibility to make it crystal clear where we stand out of respect for you, our listeners. There's always a responsibility to stand up, no matter who you are, and speak out against oppression and inequality. And the reason we haven't said more up until now was out of respect for the Black Lives Matter movement. So, to be categorically clear, We will always support peaceful protesting and the constitutional First Amendment right to assemble in solidarity and and be heard by our government. We wholly condemn the horrific acts of social injustice that most recently culminated in the death of George Floyd, and not only Floyd, but all those black and brown men, women, and children who've gone before him for the better part of the last several hundred years. There are too many cases like Floyd's, with more and more coming to light daily. There's no question that significant reform is long overdue for a system that hasn't gotten it right since its inception, and that reform needs to come now. We also feel that at this specific moment in history, the discourse belongs more to oppressed black and brown Americans than it does to a podcast about ghosts, UFOs, and cryptids. But it's encouraging to see entertainment outlets, goods and service providers, and even figures in the paranormal community voicing their support. While it's important we all do our part, it's the people that are suffering injustice whose voices should be heard first and foremost. The microphones, the megaphones, and the spotlight should be handed to them, especially at this crucial time when the momentum is greatest. It's their message that should cut through the noise so that it can reach those that need to hear it. That's the dialogue that matters most, and it should take place on the most effective channels. I'm personally optimistic and actually excited about the overdue positive change that I hope and pray will inevitably finally come from all this. It's time for that to happen.
0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Squarespace, Western Digital, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
2: Last week, we introduced you to Lady Wonder the Psychic Horse and her handler Claudia Fonda. We talked about some of the amazing predictions she made and touched on the investigations that were done to try and figure out if this horse was in fact psychic. Tonight, we take the next step of our journey into her stable by thoroughly reviewing the techniques that were used to study her. It turns out Parapsychology pioneers J.B. and Louisa Rhine were not only extremely thorough in their experiments with Lady Wonder, they went in skeptical of her alleged abilities. J.B. Rhine coined the term extrasensory perception, or ESP. There may not have been a more perfect couple at the perfect time to take a scientifically valid look at how Lady Wonder found missing children and made other fascinating prognostications. The Rhines were the right people for the job. That's why it's all the more fascinating what they concluded.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. One striking feature of the
2: horse's behavior has not been mentioned, namely her sleepy appearance when working well. Her head drooped, eyes nearly closed, nostrils relaxed, and she seemed quite inattentive. She moved no more than necessary to touch the required block. Ryan and Rhine: An Investigation of a Mind-Reading
1: Horse. Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, Volume Twenty-Three. Join us tonight for the conclusion of our series on Lady Wonder, the Psychic Horse.
2: <laughs> We're back. <laughs>
1: Wilbur. Uh, We are back, and we got a great show for you tonight, but a little light housekeeping first. I think the first thing we have to let you know is that we're coming up on a three-week break, which really means it will be a full month before our next episode posts. There's no particular reason for this other than it just being the way the annual calendar mashes up with our three shows in a row per month schedule. It happens a few times a year, but it also gives us a much-needed break while allowing us to work on some upcoming topics. Oh my goodness, yes. I just
2: can't uh you can't imagine how how much we're looking forward to some kind of a summer vacation, even <laughs> during well, yeah, quarantine means nothing to us. We we stated that before. Well, this is our biggest expense here at Astonishing Legends time, that is. But to give you an idea what time off means for us, well, for me, it means I'm returning to Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Oh. For another lockdown. Yeah, there's some other locations as well. It's basically the same thing I did last summer, which we still have not gone over the data and sifted through all the wild and wacky evidence I got. Some of it, I guarantee, is going to freak people out. But yeah, (laughs) going back there with uh, Jill and Roger Pingleton, and this time... I might be taking a few other pieces of uh, fun gear with me just to see what happens yeah, with that. But great. And if I do get anything, uh, you guys, of course, will be the first to hear about it. But also because it's such a long break, we're actually going to drop some content into our feed to keep you entertained, including a short piece on the Hellfire Club that I did. Well, Scott and I talked about it. And we put that on Patreon back when we covered the Loftus Hall. So look out for that. Yeah, that's going to go into our main feed. So everybody will uh, get a chance to listen to that. So many people have asked us also about Hellfire Club, and we, we just couldn't ignore it. It just didn't have time to fit it into the regular Loftus Hall, but it's an interesting connection, really, to Loftus Hall.
1: Yes. So that'll be coming out for all of you guys that are subscribed to our show. Additionally, and I'm taking a little bit of a leap here, but back on Valentine's Day, February 14th of 2020, or, or that weekend, I went down to the beach. Carolina Beach, in fact, with my son for a long weekend. My, my wife was in Los Angeles at the time, and I wanted him to experience a beach in North Carolina since we had recently moved back.
2: Boy, you squeezed that one in just at the right time. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: just just under yeah. the radar, just before everything went haywire. Well, I took a really nice uh, digital recorder of mine with me. It's called a Zoom, unrelated to the video conferencing app, a mm-hmm. Zoom H4n, which is uh, one that we've used uh, for the show off and on for several mm-hmm. years. Uh, Forrest has an older version of it as well. and I just got a newer one also. Because oh, did I, you?
2: I, I didn't want to be the only one, yeah, with a really nice. cool
1: Zoom h4n recorder like you they are pretty cool they they capture amazing sound and and the reason that i took this one to the beach is because i really like to go to sleep listening to various sleep sounds and i have some great apps for that but i never heard a surf sound that sounded right to me because i grew up going down to the beach in north carolina and there's Mm. a very specific Mm -hmm. kind of pounding surf there so i figured i'd record my own and i did I captured two hours and 45 minutes of high quality stereo sound of the breaking waves at high tide from a mm. deck about 50 feet from the surf. I tweeted about it the night I was recording it and a few people responded saying they'd like to have the file if it worked out. Well, it did work and I actually have been listening to it for months now to go to sleep at least a few times a week. I was planning to post it to our feed so anyone who wants it can get access to it. So if you're subscribed to our show, at some point during the three weeks that we're dark, I'm going to be releasing that file of the ocean, of the surf. It will have no words of any kind on it, so you can just use it to sleep without worrying about being woken up by it, talking or something, or just to relax. What about you snoring on it? No, it was outside, and I was inside the cottage while it was being recorded, so uh, you can meditate to it, whatever you want, or you don't have to listen to it. You don't even have to download it, but (laughs) as with every episode of our show, it will be a free offering, and you can freely share it with whoever you want, but we do not... I repeat, we do not give permission to anyone to attempt to sell it or profit from it in any way. So, But anybody that wants to share it with uh, your friends or whatever, you're welcome to do that. So keep an eye on your feeds for that as well. As that brief piece on the Hellfire Club, uh, that'll be dropping sometime during uh, the three dark weeks we have. Ah, very nice. We have a couple of great things in the pipeline for upcoming shows, including an
2: in-depth interview of us... I know, you really can't get too much of us, can you? Yeah, there's no humility in this statement. (laughs) I believe you can. (laughs) Well, but anyway, this was conducted by our good friend, Rich
1: Haddam. We sat down with him long enough to do a two-parter on this stuff, and he had some really great questions for us. Uh, Yeah, he did, and we also took questions from you guys on Patreon, as well as some from our Facebook group. So we'll be back with that in a few weeks. It's definitely the most candid conversation we've ever recorded, and you guys sent in some really great questions. Oh, and one last thing, especially if you're Canadian— Our good friend and former BAFTA award-winning BBC producer Rhys Waters has just launched a new podcast that he co-hosts with award-winning filmmaker Jesse Harley called Canadian Politics is Boring. (laughs) I guess they've both won (laughs) awards. Well,
2: they should win an award just for the title. I love that.
1: (laughs) Well, how can we don't have any awards? Chronic Mediocrity. Uh,
0: Anyway,
2: see.
1: (laughs) this show is hilarious uh, and it's blowing up on the charts in Canada. Each episode is only 15 or 20 minutes and they really are a lot of fun. So look for Canadian Politics is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, especially since we're going to be dark for three weeks. Oh, and I want to remind everyone too of our own other show, The Midnight Library. It's wrapping up its second season Mm -hmm. right now. It's been posting every Sunday for 13 in a row, and uh, there's only a few left. So if you aren't listening to that, check out the Midnight Library. It's getting better and better each time. Uh, I really think it's improved a great deal since we started it, and I'm finding it very entertaining, if I do say so myself. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of offering for us. So if you're looking for something to listen to uh, while we're dark, that's another thing you should check out.
2: And a really good way that they're different from us is that they're short and very darkly sweet. (laughs) Well, all right, let's get back to Lady
1: Wonder, the talking, I, I, I mean, the psychic horse. So the next thing we're going to be talking about is the, her premonitions, because there was a lot of things that she did, but there was something that you and I were talking about off the air earlier, Forrest, about my dog, like one of the times that you were house sitting (laughs) and dog sitting for, I can't remember why, I think my wife and I went to Hawaii, you cannot take a dog to Hawaii, they have to quarantine for like 30 or 60 days or something. And yeah. you stayed back with her very graciously in our house. And you, yeah. you had some kind of unusual experiences with her, right? I mean, she
2: is a surfing beast. So she <laughs> she loves the waves. But uh, yeah, can't make the flight to Hawaii because they have very specific rules for very good reasons. Well, one thing actually I want to say, just mention briefly here, because uh, that quote that Scott found from the Ryan and Ryan report, It made me think of it. I know we discussed it later on or will be discussing it later on here about the skeptical or debunking angle that it was Lady Wonder who basically just moved over the keys. This is all mono, so it doesn't really make any difference for me moving my head near or far from the mic left to right. Or is it stereo?
1: The show is stereo, but the recording of your voice is mono darn you
2: okay well the point (laughs) is is that they thought for lady wonder to do what she did it was simply a matter that she just moved her head over each key and at the right moment when she was at the right letter or number that's when claudia would signal her somehow and maybe it was unconscious but she would signal her and that's when lady wonder would tap the foam rubber key and the letter would flip up and there you go that's how it was done but that quote you found, I think is a great way to point out that, well, one, as we said, it, she would have to be moving steps left to right over the keyboard for the whole length of this six or seven foot long keyboard. So she'd have to be moving back and forth for this to work in my logic. So it didn't seem very likely. But the other thing that the Rhines noticed is that when she was working really well, when she was spot on, she was not moving much at all. She was almost somnambulistic. I mean, just very much like in a trance. So that also goes to the argument for me anyway, that that's maybe not likely how she was
1: doing it if there was a trick to it. Yeah. You know, originally, I don't think this was ever studied in experimentally or scientifically, but I think originally she was working with children's blocks. So she would actually have to flip the blocks over because they had multiple letters and numbers on them usually.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Right. So that's even more complicated than flipping up the other ones. Or or she was kicking the blocks. People also said
2: that, that she would, uh, I think, use her foot to kick the blocks, uh, the ones that she pointed to. But you're absolutely right. There
1: are uh, (laughs) things on each side of those blocks. So who knows? All right. Well, so I completely set you up to tell the story about Lulu, the astonishing dog, and you totally derailed it. First, you told me to set you up for that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then you went off on this other thing about the horse. Well, no, I, I think it's... you uh, Look, what you told me to do when you left my cheese out in the wind. That's all I'm saying.
2: Yeah, rarely do you actually do what I tell you to do. So <laughs> I was just flabbergasted. Uh, now, looping back to what Scott uh, set me up for here. Uh, I, I wanted to mention this because we will talk later about how animals are intuitive. And I, I tell a couple of anecdotes uh, about family pets that we've had who seem to have some kind of predictive or very intuitive nature about them. Well, for one, this story is a little creepy, which is why I wanted to share it with our audience, but it also has to do with Scott's dog. So as Scott said, while they're on vacation, I'm taking care of Lou, and she insists on sleeping under the covers, which it's fine with me. She takes up very little space. and. (laughs) As long as she doesn't mind me being there as well, I I don't think so. So normally once she's under the covers, you could tell me, Scott, uh, and and the rest of us, she pretty much is tucked in there for the rest of the night, unless she
1: hears some kind of animal screwing around in the backyard. Yeah, she'll stay under there all night. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she breathes, whatever. But (laughs) I'll tell you, in terms of her coming out from under the covers, that almost never happens. It does happen, but it's very, very rare.
2: Right. The times that I've noticed, there is usually, you know, Scott has possum, he's got raccoons in the backyard sometimes. There's there's various uh, furry critters out there that she must confront. So <laughs> she might bolt out of bed, and she can hear those, of course, even from the backyard. So what she'll do is she'll burst out from under the covers, run to the back bedroom. I was staying in the guest bedroom. She runs to the back bedroom, uh, gets behind the patio glass door, a curtain and just kind of stares. So that's when there's an animal there, or even if there's an animal by the side of the house, but that's never happened. It's always been in the backyard. So this one particular night, uh, I went to bed probably around one maybe two. And we do our usual routine. I, I clean up for the night. She gets under the covers and about 30 minutes into it. When I'm, I'm about to fall asleep here, I hear this series of loud cracks. Now, I know that the house is settling. That's my first thought. It gets very hot in the day here in the valley and it cools down at night. So, of course, there's going to be some uh, heating and cooling going on and you can hear cracks and creaks with any house. But these were loud, like, and maybe four or five loud cracks, like a one inch branch or two inch branch was snapping loud. And it sounded like it was coming near the ceiling. I don't know how I interpreted that, but like maybe the beams, because Scott has a couple of exposed beams. And I thought like, wow, that is loud. The other thing that was weird about it is that as they progressed these three or four or five times, it seemed like it was getting closer to me in the guest bedroom that's situated in in the middle of the hall. The other thing is that Scott has this automatic light. So if you get up in the middle of the night, the light comes on very low lighting level, very dim, just so you can see your way to the bathroom. And that was still on. I don't know how long it's supposed to stay on, but I I noticed when I looked up, the the light was still on.
1: It only stays on about, I think it stays on like 10 minutes or something. Okay.
2: This was longer than that. That's what I'll say is that the light was still on. I don't, not that anything's triggering it. I'm not saying that. But the loud cracks were happening. It's like, oh, wow, geez, that's a real big settle there. And that's all I thought. I tried to get back to sleep about a minute or two later.
1: It's not a big house, just for the record. You said big no. old house. The house is tiny. This is Los Angeles. It's a postage <laughs> stamp. It could be I a know. big house <laughs> in another state for about the same right. amount of money. But like, yeah. I was
2: talking about the, the, the noises. <laughs> yes, the noises. It's not big like, noises. I hear
1: that all the time. Yeah, yeah
2: my yeah. apartment does that. You know, yeah. and there are little tiny creaks and cracks and that's it. This was big and loud. So yeah. I'm like, oh, there you go. I mean, it's not my house. I've never experienced that, but it's uh, it was about four, five big sounds. And well, that's... uh. Look, it's not my house. Never happened to me while I was staring there before, but whatever. So, about a minute later, Lou bolts out from under the covers and she immediately points her head towards the open bedroom door where the hallway is. And she just stares. There's no growling, there's no hair standing up on the back of her neck. I know fur standing up like you would see if uh, there was an actual threat. She's just staring. And, of course, this caused me to stare at the doorway, wondering, like, what can she see? What is she looking at? And she doesn't move. She's very silent, like, just frozen, not moving a muscle. And this goes on for about two minutes. And then, just as calmly, she gets back under the covers. And, of course, now I'm up for the next 10 minutes, like, what is she looking at? Because, again, if it were an animal, or people might say, like, oh, she heard a mouse <laughs> in the walls or something. Well, not up at that level. Mice aren't up crawling at the stud level six feet up the door, you know, because she's looking right through the door like someone's about to walk in or more likely someone or something is looking into the doorway at us, staring at us. And she's just trying to figure out what that is.
1: I will remind you that the DR-60, that one night that when I first got it, I made that recording, which I played on an older episode of the show where I said, (laughs) I had had a few things to drink. So I'm whispering into the machine (laughs) and I said, who are you? you can hear that whispering voice on the dr 60 goes, I can't tell. <laughs> wow. Well, there so you go. So maybe that's Lou, who was in the hall there. I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you're there now and I'm in North Carolina. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lou couldn't figure it out either, apparently. She yeah. just, and, and the reason I bring this up is because a lot
2: of people will have these stories where their dogs or cats or whatever their pet is seems to recognize something that the humans can't see. Yeah. And also, children do this all the time. There's plenty of stories out there of children seeing, interacting, talking to things unseen by adults. And that's really my only story. I just thought, uh, I just remembered it. Like, yeah, there was one time where an animal I
1: was with Apparently saw something that I could not. Well, the other thing I'll say about that, obviously, knowing my dog and knowing that house pretty well and everything, is that I don't think she would have heard, uh, based on where the guest bedroom is, had something been in the backyard, the walls are fairly thick, the house was remodeled like five years ago, and it's pretty soundproof, uh, has newer windows and everything. I don't think she could have heard anything in the backyard from the guest bedroom. So whatever she did hear, I think it was in the hallway, or she wouldn't have done what she did. She must have thought something was there. And, you know, the other thing too, though, is with us being out of town, she might have been a little on edge waiting for us right. to come back because she's very, uh, she has a separation anxiety. But yeah. usually yeah. not <laughs> when you're there because you and her are very close. Yeah. So it's like, I, you know, right. I don't know. It's interesting. Like I said,
2: I, I'm not saying that the, there was a specter or any kind of a, a dark entity standing in the hallway. It's just very curious that... If it were an animal, she behaves the same way each time when there is an animal. Yeah. She runs to that back patio window. And this time, she was just staring at the doorway. In the hall. So, Yeah, which is a good little ways
1: down from the back patio there through the master. Well, um, so let's get back to uh, Lady Wonder here. We're about to talk about some of the predictions and premonitions that she made back in her heyday from uh, Richmond, Virginia, Right. Right. Well,
2: the people that witnessed and interviewed Lady Wonder during the day, they were flabbergasted, impressed with what she could suss out about them that no one else should know. So that's, you had to be there for that, but something that you don't have to be there for and that people are generally most interested in because they cannot experience, of course, your personal wonder at the experience of having Lady Wonder tell you something almost psychically. They wanna know about the predictions because that's something we can all gauge by. Either she's right or she's wrong, or she got some things right, or some things not
0: completely close, but it's still pretty weird. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Bama Shocks, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: Well, as far as predictions and premonitions goes, one of her big ones was in 1927... She made national headlines when mm-hmm. she correctly predicted that Gene Tunney would upset the heavily favored Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey, was uh, he, he was beloved, he was uh, a real powerhouse, and there was no way that Tunney was going to be able to beat him, but she predicted that correctly, and that was for the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship of that year. And then she also, according to the articles we mentioned previously, she predicted things like earthquakes, political elections, And stock market changes. And uh, as we said earlier, making this point, even though she was wrong uh, a fair amount of the time, people still believed in her. So that tells me she was right enough of the time that people still paid attention to what she had to say.
1: There's something very interesting about that fight, by the way. I had to look that up. I'm not a big fight historian. Of course, I've heard of Jack Dempsey, you know, and that I don't even know why. You just know his name. But Jack Dempsey, uh, I guess because he was such a legend.
2: Well, he was the Muhammad Ali of sorts of his day. Yes. I can't remember the specs on him. Uh, You know who would know is Dr. Joyce Brothers. Well. (laughs) People don't remember anymore, but she went on uh, the $64,000 challenge there uh, as a boxing history Expert. Oh, really? Weirdly enough.
1: All right. Well, yeah, this fight was uh, September 23rd, 1926. It was held in uh, Sesquicentennial Stadium, Philadelphia. It's the World Heavyweight Championship. It was the sixth defense by Dempsey. Tunney won it by unanimous decision after just dominating for 10 rounds. And there's a lot of interesting facts on this. I'm getting this off of a really cool website called boxrec.com, B O X R E Mm -hmm. C.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. This was boxing's third million-dollar gate, bringing in $1.8 million, almost $1.9 million. Dempsey's purse was $770,000. Tani's was $200,000. And as Forrest said, Dempsey was heavily favored to win. Here's an interesting fact that throws a little something into the Lady Wonder mix. On the morning of the fight, Mike Trent, one of Dempsey's bodyguards, gave the champion a small glass of olive oil, a habit meant to aid digestion. Dempsey suffered something akin to food poisoning. Rumors spread that gamblers had paid Trent to put something in Dempsey's olive oil, but nothing was substantiated. Many believed racketeer Arnold Rothstein was behind it. Rothstein, who was ringside for the fight, bet $125,000 at four-to-one odds that Tunney would win. That is interesting. I looked up Rothstein. By the way, his aliases were The Brain, Mr. Big, (laughs) The Fixer, The Man Uptown, The Big Bankroll. By the way, that's the winner right there, The Big (laughs) Bankroll. So he was a racketeer, businessman, and gambler who became a kingpin of the Jewish mob in New York City. He was, uh, this is from Wikipedia. Widely reputed to have organized corruption in professional athletics, including conspiring to fix the 1919 World Series. Also a mentor of future crime bosses Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Frank Costello, and numerous others. He was eventually uh, assassinated, shot and mortally wounded during a business meeting at Manhattan's Park Central Hotel at 7th Avenue near 55th Street. Uh, he died two days later. Well, as gentlemen in that profession often do. Yeah, but here's the thing about that. So Lady Wonder and Claudia, what's going on there? They, this was, a you know, four to one yeah. against Tunny. It does make you wonder though. And this only just now occurring to me as I was reading this about this fight. Mm-hmm. Bookmakers, they could go and threaten her and say, "You, this horse needs to pick. This fight, this way, but no, that wouldn't right. work, would it? No, because he would have wanted, I've got it backwards, that wouldn't work, because he would have wanted, he wanted Tunney to have the long odds. Yeah. So how would she know? By the way, in terms of events, when you were classifying events in the different ways that a horse <laughs> or a person might come up with <laughs> the strike. Psych- <fright, laughs> Boy, this is just the most fun I've had an episode in a while. <laughs> the different ways those might come up that's one of those events that I think you know it makes a bubble in the whatever the space time yeah. continuum if if a sure. if a fight was thrown or the fact just the fact that it was an upset, it might be an easier thing to latch onto in the akashic record or however you believe all this works. Mm. so maybe that mm. was all it was. It was a red light that drew uh, attention from Lady Wonder or from Claudia who then fed it to Lady Wonder. Whatever way that all works. Anyway, yeah. that's all the backstory on that. More than you ever wanted to know. We should move on. <laughs> okay. It's time to talk about JB and Louisa Rhine. Yeah, and the other examiners
2: that uh, came to seriously task Lady Wonder.
1: Yeah. We're coming at this a little bit backwards in some ways in terms of chronologically, but that's one of the, the other things that's interesting about this story to me is Lady Wonder had a 30-year career, but she actually got checked out pretty thoroughly early on. And then, in some ways, it was the inability of the examiners to completely debunk her that led to her being so successful for so long, which is fascinating to me.
2: Yeah, here are the, as we hinted at earlier, probably the more serious examinations or more thorough examinations that happened to her and by that famous couple we mentioned. Lady's notoriety for a usually uncanny accuracy started to draw more examiners who either wanted to, as you said, debunk her as just a well-trained carnival performer, or see for themselves the type of mentalism that had been fascinating inquirers and observers. In one case here, which is not so much scientific, but it's worth noting, editions of the Time Dispatch from July thirteenth, 1953, reported that a professional horse trainer, who was a skeptic of her talents, named Edward Stabe of Nebraska, had done an investigation of his own to see if she was more gifted than the horses he had trained to perform tricks. Stabe had declared his initial findings as quote-unquote not conclusive, yet he was impressed enough with his initial inspection that he challenged Lady Wonder's owners, Clarence and Claudia Fonda, to a contest between his trained horses and Lady Wonder. Now, Stabe offered $1,000 to the Fondas if Lady Wonder won. But the Fondas replied that they were not interested and cited that we've never made any claims about Lady Wonder. So I I like that stance. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, they're they're making enough money anyway, but uh, just that, uh, no, we're not making any claims and we're not interested in having a contest. But you see where he's going is that he's thinking, look, these things can be trained. And if it's more impressive than what I can do, well, then I'll cough up uh, some money here. But... Lady Wonder came to the attention of Edward Stabe after she made the national news in December of 1952 for accurately providing clues that helped find that missing boy from Massachusetts, which we just said. So that case, as it came out and made the national papers, attracted a lot of attention here. But Lady's uncanny accuracy was already well known in the Richmond area. So... She was a regional hero, a local hero, but now she was gaining national attention. So other people that came to test her, an expert on hypnotism. Now, this is an interesting hypothesis. This person, Leslie Kuhn, entertained a hypothesis that maybe the people who came with questions were being hypnotized, like a stage magician might. But he didn't find any proof of that. He too came away amazed, when he asked Lady a difficult riddle. Now get this, and this is actually from that Times Dispatch article verbatim here. What Greek word is a letter of the alphabet, a noun, a numeral, and a symbol? Pretty good riddle. Lady Wonder's answer was omega, O-M-E-G-A. She got that one right. That's impressive. I'm decent at Jeopardy, but that that, I probably couldn't come up with that. for at least a few minutes. Uh, there would be others, though, who had come to test the power of this psychic horse. A prominent New York psychiatrist who had exposed various fortune tellers named Dr. Thomas Garrett came to test Lady Wonder. But he too went away convinced after Lady had told him where to find his lost dog. (laughs) Like I said, this is, you can be the biggest skeptic, but when somebody lays one on, you like, wow, okay. Yeah, it's like, I'm
1: gonna, I am debunking this and I'm gonna, (laughs) blue can be found at your neighbor's house. Really? (laughs) Really? I gotta go. They have, they have better (laughs) treats. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There are some brushes with people as we'll see here in the. Early 20s and 30s that were actively debunking a lot of charlatans, to be sure, Mm -hmm. especially in the seance field here, as Harry Houdini had done, and this Dr. Thomas Garrett had done, and as J.B. Ryan has done. But that person you mentioned earlier, Paul Duke, you brought him up as having a a brush with Lady. Well, uh, he was known for 20 years as the moderator of the PBS news show, Washington Week in Review. I did not know that was that, Paul Duke. (laughs) That's uh, that's amazing. Okay. Well, he came to test Lady Wonder, but at the time he was a correspondent for the Associated Press, not yet the host. But he said Lady Wonder had, quote, flabbergasted me, end quote. She had nosed out the letters, as you said, of his first name, the college he went to, and the exact amount of his weekly paycheck to the dollars and cents. Wow. So he was impressed. Uh, But now it's December of 1928, and two very prominent and well-respected scientists from Duke University in North Carolina. So you you must have known them, right? Uh, Oh, yeah. I knew him
1: super well, even though I... North Kakalaki. Yeah, I wasn't born until a long (laughs) time later. But I actually do know the name. It was vaguely familiar to me, and that turns out because there's a place named for them still here in Durham. Rhine, R-H-I-N-E, right? Yeah.
2: Well, that's Dr. Joseph Banks, Rhine, or better known as J.B., because Joseph Banks just makes me think of the suit manufacturer, and his wife, Louisa E. Rhine. Yes. And the Rhines were pioneers in psychic research and the ones to popularize the term
1: extrasensory perception, or as we better know it, ESP. I think it goes beyond popularized. I think he coined it. Yes, he did. It's not like it was laying around and they made it famous. They right. invented the term ESP. That's amazing. I always thought it was Kreskin. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but no, these guys are at the forefront of parapsychology, and connected to Duke University, no less. And here's what's really interesting about that. As I said, there is still the Rhine Research Center, which if it weren't for COVID, I probably would have gone to today, Mm. because it's only about an hour from where I live now. Right. I found this interesting article that was written by Bob Chapman for the News and Observer, which is a newspaper in Raleigh. This was published on January 11th, 2015. It's uh, entitled Duke... Comma, Durham have long probed the paranormal. And then it has a whole article about that. It starts out for 85 years, Durham has been a center for the study of psychic experiences. Researchers affiliated with the Duke University Parapsychology Laboratory in the 1930s, with Duke Institute for Parapsychology and the Psychical Research Foundation through the 1970s, and with later organizations, including the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man and today's Rhine. Research Center have been attempting to determine whether ESP can be scientifically proven or disproven. That's a whole article about the heritage of that here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it goes right back to the beginning of Ghostbusters when he's got the cards. I think those are called Zener cards or zine cards. I can't remember what they're called, but yeah, the kids like yeah, should. a couple of wavy lines and he shocks him and the gun right. comes out of his mouth. But yeah. I mean, that's what it is. And I've talked about this before on the show. My great-grandmother used to test me with regular cards. Yeah. All that stuff is uh can I you know it's just right up the street from where I live now. So
2: well, the Rhines, as we said. They didn't start off with this field. J.B. Ryan was an American botanist who founded parapsychology as a branch of psychology. Yeah. As you said, uh, at the parapsychology lab at Duke University. And I'm just kind of uh, cherry picking here from the wiki entry.
1: No, I'm pretty sure Louisa was a botanist too.
2: Yeah, but what kind of snapped them into this field was attending a lecture in May 1922 given by Arthur Conan Doyle, where he was a proponent of getting scientific proof for I guess you could say ITC not in so much instrumental transcommunication but certainly communication with the dead as the wiki entry says here about him Ryan later wrote quote this mere possibility was the most exhilarating thought i had in years so that sparked him now of course that would change later when uh, Ryan as we said and i think this is a good insight on him he had looked into the psychic powers, the seance mediumship of somebody who was popular at the time, Mina Crandon, who was the wife of a socialite and, and wealthy uh, businessman, and was able to pick out some of her, uh, her flim flammery in the dark because of the use of luminous objects. So he saw that she had kicked a megaphone under the table so that uh, people thought it was spirit activity, but he saw this. So a megaphone and a horn, These you probably see them in old movies here, or new movies showing old seances where people would use these items to demonstrate spirit contact because they didn't have fancy recorders and uh, REM pods and all that kind of stuff back then. So they, they used items, and the, the more charlatan-minded would manipulate these to get people to believe uh, they had some real talent. So Harry Houdini had also exposed... Mina Crandon as well. So that's to point out that J.B. Ryan was serious at getting to the truth no matter what it was. He wasn't a diehard believer in everything. He didn't have such an open mind that his brains fell out, as the saying goes. He wanted to see what was really happening. But he also kept the possibilities of something
1: psychical on the table. What's really interesting about that investigation that Ryan did was that it put him at odds with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And, <laughs> well,
2: yeah, because Doyle was a huge proponent of Crandon.
1: Yes, he was. And uh, So I want to read this excerpt from a book called Final Seance, The Strange Friendship Between Houdini and Conan Doyle by Massimo Polidoro. This was published in 2001 by Prometheus Books. I have the Kindle edition of the book. This is location uh, 2650 of 3554, I don't know how that helps anyone, at 76% Mm. into the book. And the title of this section is J.B. Ryan's Investigation. One investigator after another remained unsatisfied by Marjorie's seances. This is, again, we're talking about Crandon, which Forrest just mentioned, with them investigating her. And after Dingwall, the Harvard Group, and the ASPR's commission, it was time for Joseph Banks Ryan, 1895 to 1980, professor at Duke University, North Carolina, who in 1935 would start the study of psychic phenomena, later termed by him parapsychology. So he came up with ESP and parapsychology, in a scientific laboratory, invited by the ever-enthusiastic bird. I know these are some characters that you guys don't know, so if you want to know more about the context of this, get this book. We'll have a link to it. Uh, It's about Houdini and Doyle. It's pretty interesting. Ryan arrived in Lime Street on July 1st, 1926, and the Crandons greeted him with the usual hospitality. From the start, Ryan and his wife, Louisa, who Mm. lived from 1891 to 1983, knew that it would have been impossible to test the facts as they would have liked to. For example, they couldn't examine the substance with the lights turned on, and Ryan was prevented by Crandon from examining the various instruments that filled the seance room that were supposed to document and measure this or that phenomenon. Still, the professor was able to notice that the ropes of a device that was supposed to hold the medium had been removed, allowing complete freedom of movement. When Rhine saw Marjorie's foot kicking a megaphone during a seance to give the impression that it was levitating, the crudity of the deception was clear. If he had been able to detect all these things in one seance, wondered Ryan, Why didn't Byrd, with three years of experience, this is another gentleman, have any suspicions? Could he be a confederate of the medium? Byrd denied the accusation, saying that they were Ryan's personal opinions, but the professor wondered what could have led men like Byrd or Carrington, both people who were proponents of her, to play the medium's game and observed, quote, this is a Ryan quote, it is evidently a very great advantage to a medium, especially a fraudulent, to be personally attractive. It aids in the (laughs) fly-catching business, end quote. Uh, Our report would be incomplete without mention of the fact that this business, end quotes, reached the point of actual kissing and embracing at our sitting in the case of one of the medium's more ardent admirers. Could this man be expected to detect trickery in her? Oh my. That's an end quote. This could partially explain the motives of Byrd and his colleagues, but what about Dr. Crandon? If he was a Confederate too, he certainly couldn't be motivated by the desire of a love affair with the medium since she was already... His wife, Ryan offered the following motive. Quote Crandon gradually found out she was deceiving him, but had already begun to enjoy the notoriety it gave him, the groups of admiring society it brought to his home to hear him lecture and to be entertained, the interest and fame aroused in the country and Europe, etc. This was especially appreciated by him in view of decided loss of position and prestige suffered in recent years. End quote. This is where things get dicey. The publication of Ryan's report. In the Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, the ASPR, that's the American Society for Psychical Research, had refused it because of its skeptical nature, just as it would later refuse to publish the McComas report, which I'm not sure what that is. So it published in the Journal of Abnormal Social Psychology, it caused the inevitable protests by Marjorie, who reportedly said, quote, that's all poppycock. My husband attends all my seances, and I would have to be very rash to go around kissing, end quote. (laughs) And this is the whole reason I wanted to read this little section. Ah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, after reading the report, bought space in the Boston newspapers and inserted an ungentlemanly black bordered notice stating simply, J.B. Ryan is an. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, hey, if you're
2: going to get called an. uh, I mean, yeah, at least it's somebody uh, famous.
1: The reason I wanted to read that is that there's a lot about that that's really interesting. It tells you a whole lot about Ryan. I mean, yeah, he's pulling no punches with the investigation of these seances in this particular medium. And uh, he doesn't care whose feathers he ruffles, including uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So it's very interesting to look at his critical eye and his skepticism in that particular scenario and then yeah. take it back into account with what you're about to find out about what he thought about Lady Wonder. Oh, also, I, I looked up uh, her husband. Yes, her, her name was Mina,
2: and uh, she went by Marjorie Crandon, and uh, her husband was Dr. Leroy Goddard Crandon, a wealthy Boston surgeon and socialite, because you want socialite on the uh, on your title there.
1: Yeah? Right, and what Ryan was saying was that he became a socialite because of her seances. Yeah, of course. Well, <laughs> there you go. Oh, so the, the bigger
2: point here, though, is that at least you can point to Ryan exposing fraud when he saw it that's right exactly and in this case i would expect him to do the same thing right and at some point i would have expected that because they spent a week administering around 500 tests to lady wonder trying different methods like blindfolding everyone in the stable remember i said that including lady wonder yes they blindfolded the horse and and of course uh, uh horse, of a course, a horse, will have blinders sometimes to keep it more calm so things aren't freaking them out and they're, they're seeing uh, things that might spook them. But she was still able to perform blindfolded. And even though Claudia Fonda had insisted on standing near Lady Wonder during the testing, the Rhines stated that they couldn't detect any communication between Claudia and Lady and in the end concluded that her abilities were not a hoax and that Lady Wonder did indeed have considerable psychic abilities in general. But however, many years later, Dr. J.B. Ryan had walked back his conclusion a bit, saying he felt there were sometimes possibly subtle clues or signals from Claudia that Lady Wonder may have sensed and responded to. Not saying that Claudia was a fraud, but there was some kind of unspoken communication that maybe Claudia wasn't even aware of. But there was no explanation as to how Lady Gave correct answers about things Claudia could not have logically known. And Ryan never elaborated on his later suspicions. Now, here's a treat for
1: everyone. You actually got copies of both Ryan reports, right? Boy, howdy, did I. I have been sitting here going crazy <laughs> waiting for this moment in this show. Okay. Very These good. reports, I wanted to see them for myself, and they're actually in the public domain but they're very hard to find. I managed to find them online at the American Psychological Association and was able to purchase PDFs of them. They were great. Talked to them on the phone for a few minutes. I it was funny because there were some technical problems with getting them delivered. When oh, I first yes, ordered I them late on the research night and I was like, "Ah, I can't get them." And then I got up the next day to get them and there were still technical problems, so I called them and, you know, it's the American Psychological Association. People <laughs> most people are probably calling for far more serious-minded reasons than I was. Uh, medical I, stuff, you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was like, I need to get my, you know, I paid for these articles last night, and <laughs> I didn't get them. And she's like, okay, great. What's your account number? So I'm giving her that information. And she's like, okay, can you give me the titles of the articles? And I said, an investigation of a mind-reading horse. is <laughs> <laughs> the first one. And she kind of snickered. And then I said, second report on Lady, the mind-reading horse. And she started laughing. I had to explain to her the whole podcast and everything. But, um. <laughs> well, I'm sure that that was a <laughs> nice palate cleanser for her rather than yeah. like uh, infectious disease, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've got these two reports. They're pretty amazing. I would put them in our show notes, but, you know, these were purchased by us and are revenue generators for for the American Psychological yes, right. So we'll put a link to how you can get them yourself if you want to. But I am going to read excerpts from them. They are in the public domain. This is really fascinating. The links that they went to uh, – you're going to hear me shuffling papers because, yes, actually, sometimes I like to print out papers.
2: And it does sound cool, too. Yeah. Like you're – I actually, look like a newscaster, uh,
1: too. We're not filming Yeah, this we actually
2: one. looked at something that
1: wasn't uh, on a website. Yeah, see here I'm taking my glasses off. I'm getting all serious. <laughs> I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this because it, it goes to how thorough these guys were. An Investigation of a Mind-Reading Horse by J.B. Rine, Ph.D., and Louisa E. Rhine, Ph.D., Duke University. By the way, this came out um, 1927, I think it was, uh, just for, I, I don't have it here right in front of me, but mm-hmm. we'll, um, we'll have that in the show notes. But this is from when Lady Wonder was only a couple years into doing this. Cases of telepathic sensitivity in animals have been reported from time to time during the last quarter century, but on the whole have been granted little recognition from students of science. In some instances, they have been so completely settled negatively in the minds of investigators in advance of any study that the investigations have frequently been superficially made or not even considered necessary for the formulation of a conclusion. This attitude of credulous skepticism, however, is plainly unfair and unscientific regardless of the nature of the case, and has never served to demonstrate either the truth or the error of such claims in any field. In other words, there are no a priori grounds for a conclusion on such a problem as telepathy, and the hard and irreducible facts should be resorted to. So... This goes on to talk about some other pre-existing cases of these other animals. And there's, you know, we came across some of those in our research, but there's one just here in this report that we, I hadn't seen anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a little section of this because this goes to Mr. and Mrs. Ryan's conclusions and dispositions towards this kind of research. One of the earliest cases claimed to be animal telepathy was that of the dog Dodgerfield, owned by a Mr. Davies. This case was reported by Thorndike. In 1898, and that's cited. There's citations, obviously, for all this stuff, but I'm not going to get into that right now. The dog could bring its owner the correct Mm -hmm. one out of four cards without any observed signal. The owner sat with closed eyes, hands concealed behind a newspaper, and silent except for the command. Attention, Dodger, bring it! Thorndike apparently, in the absence of any decisive evidence either way, felt that it was a case of delicate association, the reading of cues in the owner's facial expression. So... That's without any evidence. That was just something that he's saying that he's making the point that these other researchers are jumping to conclusions. Now, this is a much bigger story. This is about Clever Hans, which a lot of people brought up in the Astonishing mm-hmm. Research Corps. And you can't talk about oh, Lady yeah. Wonder without mentioning Clever Hans. In 1904, Kral, K-R-A-L-L, took up the study of William Van Austin's horse, Clever Hans at Munich. This horse was said to possess not only telepathic powers, but also independent thinking and calculating ability. Krall himself tried to train other horses and other animals to do similar feats, and was successful with a few horses, one of them blind. Many people, scientific and otherwise, observed these horses perform. Among them was a committee of academic scientists, headed by Stumpf of Berlin. Most of the observers agreed with the committee that unconscious signals from the investigator guided the horse. Some suspected that a stableman, whom they supposed was hidden about the place, gave the signals. one of the coolest names, I think his first name was Oscar, this guy, P-F-U-N-G-S-T, claimed to be able to guide the horse by signals himself. (laughs) A few observers, on the other hand, were convinced the horses exhibited telepathy and were of superior intelligence. The honesty and sincerity of Krall himself does not seem to have been questioned. He goes on to talk about how these uh, things were studied, and right. he mentions uh, other horses. There's other. Stu- there were a lot of studies going on. I think yeah. I'm looking here, seven studies, 10, 5, 4. There were a lot of people checking out smart animals trying to figure out what, <laughs> what, the, what the hell is going on. Well,
2: it's fun. Yeah. But
1: yeah, uh, no, I think with crawl, what was interesting
2: is that they don't believe that he was uh, exhibiting any fakery with that, but right. he just didn't know. He just he, couldn't he wasn't figure aware it out. Of him. Yeah, he wasn't aware himself how it was working. He just knew that uh, the horse cooperated.
1: Right. And with regard to all of these different studies, Ryan goes on to say right here, you know, and that's how he's setting the groundwork for this study of Lady Wonder, all reports so far presented, including his own, leave much to be desired in completeness and decisiveness.
0: Hi, I'm Renata, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
1: All right, so cutting down to the chase here where we talk about Lady Wonder and their examination of her. They do a little bit of a description about who she is. This is all stuff we've already told you. Uh, I'm going to move down here to the meat of it a little bit. The study of the telepathic claim naturally centers around the question of whether there is signaling from agent to percipient in this case, from Mrs. Fonda to the horse. Such signaling may be deliberate and conscious, as in movements of whip or arm or head, or in word cues, throat sounds, and the like. Or it may be unintentional and unconscious, provided the agent is not on his guard and consists in an inclination of the body, a suspension of breathing, attention of the muscles, a direction of looking, etc. A case for telepathy can be made only by the successful exclusion of signaling, thus eliminating the normal sensory channels. If mental influence is transferred under these conditions, the phenomenon is named telepathy, with no hmm. claim implied as to the nature of the process. I like that last part. No claim yeah. implied. We don't know how it works, but we're just telling you it's not working this other way. Right. <laughs> yeah. The common alternative hypothesis, hypersthesia, is dependent on signals or cues and therefore stands or falls with the evidence for a signaling system. We had to do, then, with a simple question. What is the evidence for and against signaling? Our experiments were begun on December 3, 1927, and ended on January 15, 1928, covering in this period a total of six days. The tests were made at the residence of Mrs. Fonda in a demonstration tent about 9 by 12 feet, which had a stall for the colt in one corner and a rude table near the center toward which the animal faced. On this table were placed, as needed, cubical letter blocks, child's blocks, with the letter on one face only, or number plates, each about one and a half inches wide, with one of the figures from zero to nine on each. Mrs. Fonda usually stood by lady's head on the left side and all others stood across the table from the horse. Mrs. Fonda readily accepted any suggestions we made and allowed us to follow our own schedule. We arranged the blocks or plates in any order we wished and changed them frequently. We instituted the arrangement of the 10 number plates in two rows of five. Mrs. Fonda customarily had one row of 10. Sometimes the blocks or plates were only one and a half inches apart. Sometimes they were as much as eight inches apart. We were not always able to progress smoothly toward our goal and had in some cases, to repeat the same tests on different days in order to reach satisfaction on them. They are therefore not given chronologically. In general, our aim was to run the test in series of 5, 10, or 15, but in several cases there were changes made in the conditions during a series, a breakdown of control, or a tightening of restrictions, and as a consequence, we have some short series or fragments. So then they get into the math of all of this, Mm -hmm. which gets kind of complicated. I'm going to skip over that. And then there's, uh, just so you know, listeners, when you hear later in the paper, they refer to people by just an initial. And uh, the people that were present here was a professor, William McDougall, who was the Rhines mentor at Duke University. And uh, he'll be referred to as M., then there was an assistant superintendent of the Detroit schools, I'm not sure why, but his name was John F. Thomas, so he's T, and I'll try to remind you when this happens. Fonda is F, Mr. Ryan is R, and Louisa is L-E-R, but you'll mostly hear about F and R uh, just in some of these results. So there I just want to talk about the types of experiments they did, and we're almost done with this. If you're bored, I'm sorry. There's three <laughs> groups, uh, or a couple of groups here. The first one, experimental group, is the unrestricted conditions. And this group consists of observations made with F entirely unrestricted, uh, meaning Mrs. Fonda, and is given to show some of Lady's feats. In most of these cases, F talked freely to the horse and used the whip occasionally when necessary to urge her to work. F sometimes caught Lady's halter and drew her back for a fresh start. So I think that was kind of a reset she would do. Yeah. And movements such as these, and in the words and inflections of her spoken commands, we naturally looked for evidence of a system of guidance. So then there's a whole series of different tests here, but it's <laughs> this is really interesting. In the first test, uh, it was guessing numbers. She got four correct, then uh, one correct on a second trial. They asked her what time it was. It was 2.45. She touched 2.30. There were number mm-hmm. plates where she was asked the cube root, cube root, <laughs> of 64, of 27, and of 1,728. Uh, this was also combined with some simple addition like four plus four Mm -hmm. and um the results of all these questions were that she got eight correct one incorrect the cube root of 64 was the incorrect one and uh she didn't even try 1728 notably which i thought was interesting (laughs) yeah um Mm. and then here are the words that we heard so much about we actually mentioned these you hear these in the mysteries of museum episode you hear these i think we mentioned a couple of them where they asked her to do these words uh let's see 26-lettered blocks were on the table in two rows. M and R wrote words on the pad and showed to F. That's Mrs. Fonda. Mrs. Fonda told Lady to spell the words, but didn't say what the words were. And the words on that list were bed, kid, Mesopotamia, Carolina, mm-hmm. Hindustan. Uh, she got all of those correct. So... Whoa! Moving on to the next group. There's a lot more there. Believe it or not, I am skipping a lot of stuff. I just want—I'm just trying to give a framework for how mm-hmm. thorough this testing was. I and I, mm-hmm. I hope that that's working. Group B, trainer restricted. In this group, the freedom of F, Mrs. Fonda, was gradually restricted in order to limit the possibility of signaling. F knew the number chosen. It was selected by M or R, that would be Mr. McDougal, Professor McDougal, or Doctor Ryan, usually from a duplicate set in his pocket, sometimes mentally. Plates were arranged in two rows of five each. So just to give a little overview of these different categories and how they're going through and categorically eliminating possible signaling. The first thing they do was they eliminated voice. So Mrs. Fonda couldn't talk at all. On that test, she got nine correct. The second part, and I'm, I'm abbreviating some of these, and you can, if you go look at this, you can get to the more uh, precise statistics. They eliminated body movements. On this test, McDougal occasionally spoke to Lady But Mrs. Fonda did not. They had had her do numbers, 1 through 10. She got 9 correct. Hmm. Then the next thing they did was they restricted head and eye movements, eliminated. And this is pretty... Oh, and and by the way, on the prior group, the body movements eliminated. They did multiple tests. All results were correct. Now, Mm -hmm. keep in mind, body movements... What that meant then and what that might mean now, because we know how much animals can perceive subtle movement, it might be two different things. But head and eye movements eliminated. In this case, they had uh, test numbers one through 10, five correct, three correct on second trial, two incorrect. Uh, they did numbers again, one through five. The numbers were eight, seven, five, eight, and one. She got four correct. Then they did another one where F, meaning Mrs. Fonda, was restrained, and uh, Dr. Ryan watched her. Ten blocks, blank except on faces turned down, were used. In this test, all correct. All correct. So mm-hmm. they're just getting further and further. So now I'm, I'm moving, I'm skipping ahead. Mrs. Fonda was blindfolded. Fonda was blindfolded, not Lady Wonder. Right. A woolen scarf doubled, covered her face from the forehead to the tip of the nose. She was allowed to say, find lady when necessary. Dr. Rhine asked orally, test one through five. Problems. These were the questions. One half of 18, a quarter of 32, one twentieth of 100, one fiftieth of 100, one twenty-fifth of 100. Result, four correct. Hmm. That's with Fonda being blindfolded. All right, so here now we get to all agents under control, blindfolded, silent, and motionless from Mrs. Fonda. And Mr. Ryan, Dr. Rhine, looked away during the test. He gave the location by description only, speaking in low tones to Mrs. Fonda. Numbers were changed around so that Mrs. Fonda would not know the number at a given location, meaning on the table, I guess. Five different locations given, the result all correct under those circumstances. Mm. And they go on here to say, these results of oral tests might conceivably be due to superior intelligence, but it is evident from the general data so far Presented that some unusual transfer of thought, whether by signaling or by telepathy, is involved. Either explanation is theoretically adequate to explain the results without the assumption of a superior intelligence. Right. Moreover, certain tests, such as X, E, indicate that Lady does not act from knowledge of the letters and numbers, but rather, as in IX, meaning test 9, C, and D, and later series show, from being somehow directed to a given location. We feel safe, therefore, in presenting these data when taking with the general setting as not being subject to the criticism of possible superior intelligence. So they've come to a conclusion that she's not necessarily doesn't know what she's doing, but she is somehow magically being guided to these things. Mm. So the mm. next thing that happened is they're now they're doing what they call gradually separating the trainer from the horse. We encounter difficulty in this attempt and had to force the innovation on the horse's opportunity permitted since she stopped working when she became aware of Miss Fonda's absence. So she didn't like it when she wasn't there. Because of how close these two were, I don't think that necessarily means anything other than she wants to be with her.
2: Yeah, that happens with your pets. I mean, I've been in uh, a friend's car with his dog that loved me, you know, I have known for years and he went into the store to get something and the dog is acting like,
1: Oh my God, I'm stuck here with this guy. He's never coming back. My it's dog like, needs medication yeah. when we leave her home. So
2: <laughs> yeah, no, they, they get very upset even when it's like, no, we, you've been to the store a thousand times, you know, that your owner's coming back and what am I chop lever?
1: You know? Yeah. But so even when they did this, when Mrs. Fonda was gone, They had uh, a test uh, go through with one test on it. It was correct. They did another one that had uh, three letters, one correct, one correct on second trial, one incorrect. Then they went further with an 18 by 18 inch board held by Dr. Ryan near Lady's Head, which screened both Mrs. Fonda and himself from the horse. Mrs. Fonda said only, find the number, lady, test one, number eight, correct on second trial. She missed it on the first trial, but got it right the second time. And that's what them totally screened off. This -hmm. keeps going, and then it advances to a screen interposed between horse and trainer. A board 18 inches square was used. Mrs. Fonda held the screen. She could see some of the number plates, and the horse could probably see her feet and coat. See how thorough they are? That's what I love about this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Mrs. Fonda's remarks were limited to find the number, lady. Test one, the number was four, result correct. And then F and R, both behind the screen, which F held, again, F is Fonda and R is Dr. Ryan. R and F alone knew F's expressions were limited as they were prior. Test one through five with five letters, lady got four correct and one wrong. They did it again. She got two correct, two correct on second trial, and then one incorrect. And so their conclusion on this particular section was the restrictions imposed in this group without preventing success served to eliminate certain possibilities of signaling. Audible cues could not have operated with Mrs. Fonda silent and separated from Lady by Mm. One of Us. Movements of the body or of eyes were ruled out by the successful series in which Mrs. Fonda as well as McDougal and Dr. Ryan were controlled and motionless. Even the most delicate cues, whether conscious signals from Mrs. Fonda or unconscious ones from Dr. ryan were invisible when the board screen was interposed. So then the last group, this group C, that's the trainer eliminated group. In this group, Mrs. Fonda was kept ignorant of the number chosen. She was eliminated thus as a factor in the process under investigation, yet was retained as an aid in controlling the cult and making her work for us. So in this first one on this group, they said, F was ignorant of the number. M and R alone knew the number, being McDougall and Ryan. Both stood at the end of the table where unconscious signaling, if any, would be least effective. So keeping in mind here that Mrs. Fonda did not know these five numbers in this test. Mm-hmm. And the other two, uh, Mr. McDougall, I, he might be a doctor too, I can't remember. And uh, Dr. Yeah. Ryan stood at uh, far ends of the table and did the five numbers lady got four of them correct and one incorrect Hmm. they did say in this test she went to a correct number also but didn't touch it so I don't know if that was the one they marked wrong or it's not clear to me so they did this a couple of different ways it was four correct and then they had to stop because the horse was starting to get tired of it (laughs) <laughs> well, I can meant just why, why, what's the point
2: of this? Yeah. yeah,
1: there's another one here, like, just listen to this. R, Dr. Ryan alone knew the block which he chose mentally. He stood motionless except for his eyes, which were shaded by his hat, from the vision of Mrs. Fonda and Lady. So she was there, but didn't know what it was, because she's mm. there for horse control. He was consciously non-communicative and held his head straight ahead throughout. His hands were clasped in front against the body in all tests. He limited his speech to, all right, lady, after a correct trial, and no, lady, after a failure. Tests one through ten, seven different positions chosen. I don't know exactly what that means, but the result says five correct, one correct on second trial, four incorrect. So even with that, she got five of them right. Mm-hmm. So it just keeps going. And then it's like at the end here, it talks about group C demonstrated that others could act as agents instead of F, Mrs. Fonda. Though not so successful as F, they still succeeded well above the allowance for chance, even when under conscious control over unconscious indications. It will be seen that there is much left to be done yet in training the horse with a stationary screen and with F out of the tent, et cetera. So they're acknowledging that there were some things were hard to do because the environmentally it was stressing the horse out. Right. So I'm going to hold this big screen near your face and then ask (laughs) you these questions. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Which, you know, the
1: horse... Again, if
2: she's as perceptive as people have said, she may know that uh, it's some kind of a test or it's a performance. But some things about it aren't normal and comfortable, so that's affecting her performance, and you have to take that into account. But what you're saying is, is was there a test where nothing was said? There was always a a, a, a control a verbal cue to her. Yeah,
1: no, there was one. I read a minute ago where it said that R knew the letter mentally. And Mrs. Fonda didn't. That was the one I read a minute ago. R alone knew the block, which he chose mentally. Yeah. There was 10 of those, and she got five of them.
2: Well, 50%. Yeah,
1: yeah 50% of them. So now, here's the statistical analysis of all these three tests. A, with no control, her percentage of success was 94.4%. Uh-huh. B, with various restrictions, where they'd started the restrictions, her success was 78.3%. and C. With Mrs. Fonda not knowing anything, she still had a rate of 45%. For control, they did uh, just flat-out guessing on number blocks, and uh, she had a success rate of 11%. So she's four times better when... She's four times better when... uh... So what they're saying is, uh, I guess the control, it says guessing on 10 number blocks, numbers 0 through 9. They did uh, 200 tests like that. Yeah, And there was 22 successes and 178 failures. So it was an 11% success rate. Uh. But then with Mrs. Fonda not knowing, they did 49 tests like that. Yeah. And she had uh, 22 successes, five successes on a second trial, and then 22 failures. So that was a 44.9% success rate. That's with Fonda just totally shut down from the process. Right. And so this conclusion here is that I'm marked with three asterisks because I wanted to read this. One striking feature of the horse's behavior has not been mentioned. And this is something you made reference to earlier, but I thought mm-hmm. was really startling. I actually read it in this before I saw that other part in your section of the outline. Mm-hmm. One striking feature of the horse's behavior that has not been mentioned, namely her sleepy appearance when working well, her head drooped, eyes nearly closed, nostrils relaxed, and she seemed quite inattentive. She moved no more than was necessary to touch the required block and often touched a nearer one in the next row. This passivity could be so deepened, by monotonous command for instance, as to render her apparently motionless and almost asleep. Occasionally she would fall so deeply into this lethargy while working that she simply remained motionless for a time. She could be awakened by a sharp command or a touch of the whip and quickly become a normal active cult again. Wow. So in their final section here, which we, we talked about, there is left then only the telepathic explanation, the transference of mental influence by an unknown process. Nothing was discovered that failed to accord with it, and no other hypothesis proposed seems tenable in view of the results. However, we are still devoted to the end of more and better evidence and are interested at this stage in obtaining not so much credence as assistance in securing more evidence. The continuation of the research will be greatly facilitated by information regarding dogs, horses, or human beings who may possess telepathic ability. Even the so-called thinking or calculating animals may be of use. It is unfortunate that such animals are usually celebrities and their time must be purchased at high (laughs) figures. Without special financial aid, this is a real obstacle. Wow. They actually went on to talk about how they, I think, basically surprised her, Mrs. Fonda, uh, yeah. When they were about to move for the summer and things just went haywire, like nothing worked out. And so they talk about that. It's, it's That's an interesting addition here. Oh, there's another important thing here. These results appear to show that Lady does not have a working knowledge of the alphabet with which most of her work is done and that in some matter she is directed to the blocks by an external agency. So, wow. I, th- I just think it's great to see you know, the specifics of how thorough they were and what they did and didn't do. And because that's where you're, you know, everybody's like, well, what? Or maybe nobody is. Maybe it's just me. My thought (laughs) is always, what's going on here? What did they actually do while they were here? So then to your other point earlier, they went back a year later and things didn't work out. Yeah. It was a whole different thing. And they talked about this. They published this. This is called the second report on Lady the Mind Reading Horse. And um, they came back, I think it was six months later, and here's an excerpt from that. Of this superior intelligence, we obtained no evidence. On the other hand, we were able to show that Lady did not even recognize the letters of the alphabet. So in this particular test, they were just saying that everything seemed uptight, and they described Mrs. Fonda as being uptight too, and the performance is just not going well at all. They don't have any of the experiments like they did in the first test, but they said that she never really went into that sleepy state, and also they noticed a direct connection between voice and whip this time, and also that Mrs. Fonda seemed more uptight. They brought the screen Mm. back. They had problems with that. It says here it was impossible to get... F, meaning Mrs. Fonda, to carry out our restrictions for the most part. This is for the second time they came. She did not remain motionless in spite of our repeated requests, although she would acquiesce and appear to try. When asked to fix her gaze upon a certain point, she would hold the pose only momentarily. Then finding the animal loitering or touching wrong blocks, as it invariably would do, she would break control and scold or whip the horse, which made me a little sad. I mean, I know she wasn't, like, whipping it hard. No, no, she just tapped it. Yeah. As noted in the earlier report, this had occurred occasionally at that time, but not to the exclusion of all success as it did in this later study. At that time, however, the horse usually succeeded promptly, and F's provocation to break control was less, but now the horse seemed entirely dependent on the various obvious cues which F, unrestricted, gave it, and it did not succeed without them. So there was a whole thing, and they also indicated they couldn't even control her when... Mrs. Fonda wasn't there, so something had gone kind of crazy, but the other thing that they said in this second report was that uh, she never went anywhere near that sleepy, trance-like state that she used to go into. She was an active cult the whole time, right? and that goes to this whole thing, I think, of uh, the possibility that I think that Mrs. Fonda wound up overthinking what they were doing after the first study and seeing all the things that were being watched and maybe taking it too far and upsetting that delicate balance that maybe she didn't even understand that connected her and Lady Wonder.
2: Yeah, I, I think that latter part of what you said there is a connection because uh, if you just keep doing what you're doing, there's something about that state, though. I mean, that's what kind of, uh, I found most significant is that that state of not even somnambulistic uh a trance-like, Perhaps more akin to something that Casey was experiencing, but not completely out. Because as we know uh, from the series, Casey was completely out and could not feel pain even. Yeah. As these things were coming through him. And and that's what he needed to achieve to be the open conduit. Uh, whereas Lady, there's something maybe close to that, where now she's now connected to Claudia Fonda. Yeah. And they're both... Uh, somehow back and forth channeling. Now, there's another case here uh, I thought we should mention where it may be just more cues and a lot of gentle training, and that was beautiful Jim Key. This happened earlier in the 20th century, and I'm just looking at the uh, the wiki page here for some key notes here. His owner, William Key, and he went by Dr. William Key, but I think, I think that was an honorary title. Uh, he was a former slave and a self-trained veterinarian, And beautiful Jim Key, he trained solely by, as he claimed, just gentle patience and teaching and kindness, and he just, I think he just drilled the horse over and over and over again until they had some kind of connection here, where the horse, as the promoters claimed, could do things like read and write, make change with money, he could do arithmetic but only for numbers below 30. Hmm. <laughs> like that's, that's still pretty impressive. Yeah, that's about yeah, where yeah. I'm at. Yeah. yeah. And also of course, uh, uh, due to the time, cite Bible passages where the horse is mentioned. That's in quotes. That oh, interesting. It's just on the wiki passage that, you know, and he was a very popular attraction. And that was the point there. So he was one of the most popular attractions at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. So you can see this was like a generation earlier. Yeah. But the, really the point here that Dr. William Key was trying to make was to be kind to animals. So that was his angle on it. And uh, they traveled around in a special railroad car, it says here, for the new cause of humane treatment of animals. Huh. So he was a pioneer in that respect and they uh, they made their way to the larger American cities and the horse was made an honorary member, it says here, of George Thorndike Angels American Humane Association and he also got two million kids to gather together and pledge never to be mean to animals. So uh-huh. that, that needs a citation, but uh, I take that message as you can make a bond with an animal that close where they can do amazing things. Now, yeah. I'm not sure there's a psychic connection because... That sounds something different, and when you involve uh, guessing things that are written down and also a a bit of prognostication, seeing into the future a little bit, and some of that's accurate, it's kind of a different thing. But this is kind of an interesting feat here where I I do believe there's such a connection made by beautiful Jim Key, the horse, and Dr. William Key that they, they shared probably subtle cues, and where Clever Hans was... There was a connection there where the owner wasn't even aware that he was doing it. I believe that uh, William Key, as he was training the horse, there's much more of a trainer subject relationship. And so cues were reinforced over and over again. So that's possible, but not with every animal, I don't believe. I've certainly uh, been around dogs that uh, didn't learn a darn thing, but they're they still lovable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a look at the skeptical and debunker angle on this. And I think it can be summed up pretty well with what Milborn Christopher observed. And Milborn Christopher was an American illusionist, a magic historian, and author. And I'm, yes, I'm getting this off his wiki page here. But uh, he was one of the founding members for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Who do we know from there? Joe Nickell, And he was one of Joe Nickell's mentors. So uh, he was around the time of the, the height of Lady Wonder, and he did his own investigation on her His viewpoint sums up pretty well what the very skeptical angle on it of what was really going on. And you got to realize both these guys are stage magicians, like they're magic mechanics. They know how these things work. They know how it can come off as being something paranormal when really it isn't. But there is one ironic thing that I liked in his, uh, his profile here ironically, despite his denial of the existence of psychic or paranormal powers, and fellow magicians like Harry Houdini and James Randi, both of whom also worked to expose false psychics and mediums, Christopher was accused by some of using paranormal powers to perform his own magic tricks and illusions. (laughs) Well, uh, Joe Nickel, uh, we always look to to see what the rational uh, explanation without any magic that goes on, and and he usually has a pretty solid and well-thought-out position, if not the less exciting one. And his position in his paper here, called Psychic Pets and Pet Psychics, (laughs) from his investigative files, uh, which is a PDF that you can download yourself, and that's from the November-December 2002 Skeptical Inquirer publication. He essentially lays out Millborn Christopher's finding and position on it as, well, there you go, that explains it. So I'm just going to read the, the passage here that includes Magician, Millborn, Christopher, and Lady Wonder. Of course, trainers could deliberately cue their animals and practice other deceptions, such as secretly gleaning information that the animal would then reveal psychically. In 1929, the man who later coined the term ESP, Dr. J.B. Ryan, Scott and I were just talking about, was taken in by a supposedly telepathic horse named Lady Wonder. Ryan believed Lady actually had psychic power, and he set up a tent near her Virginia barn so he could scientifically study her apparent abilities. Lady was trained to operate a contraption, somewhat like an enlarged typewriter, consisting of an arrangement of levers that activated alphabet cards. Lady would sway her head over the levers, then nudge one at a time with her nose to spell out answers to queries. So that's uh, what Christopher had wrote, uh, I think, in 1970. And uh, Joe Nickel goes on to write, Magician Milbourne Christopher, 1970, had an opportunity to assess ladies' talents on a visit in 1956. As a test, Christopher gave ladies' trainer, Mrs. Claudia Fonda, a false name, John Banks. The real Banks had exhibited the talking horse Morocco, mentioned earlier. So it was another uh, talking horse that, uh, (laughs) of some note, earlier on. When Christopher subsequently inquired of Lady, what is my name? The mayor obligingly nudged the letters to spell out B-A-N-K-S. So she guessed the false name again, like Doctor, Doctor, (laughs) the the false spelling of Doctor. Anyway, it goes on to say, another test involved writing down numbers which Lady then divined. Given a narrow pad and a long pencil, Christopher suspected Mrs. Fonda might be using a professional mentalist technique known as pencil reading, which involves subtly observing the movements of the pencil to learn what was written. So he pretended to write a bold nine, but while going through the motions, only touched the paper on the downstroke to produce a one. Although he concentrated on the latter number, Lady indicated the answer was nine. Maybe it was a a visual cue. Maybe it was, uh, we don't know what he really concentrated on. Maybe she was jumbled, but uh, it goes on to say, in short, as the noted magician and paranormal investigator observed, Mrs. Fonda gave a slight movement of her training nod whenever Lady's head was at the correct letter. That was enough to cue the swaying mare to stop and nudge that lever. Thus, Lady was revealed to be a well-trained animal, not a telepathic one. Hmm. So, no doubt, this is true of her predecessors, whose exhibitors were often performing magicians. So, for that to work for me, she's again, this thing's about the length of a concert xylophone, or you could say a a grand piano, maybe yeah, with two six rows feet of letters. Long, I
0: think, yeah, six yeah.
2: feet long. For that to really work and hit all the numbers, she'd have to sway back and forth evenly until she hit the right one, because that's how this principle is working here. You know what I'm saying? Is yeah. that? The horse is just naturally swaying back and forth and it's looking for some cues and maybe they would contend that it's like, keep going, keep going, more left, more left, more left. And now, and that was somehow very subtly transmitted to Lady Wonder by Mrs. Fonda. But for me to understand how that worked, it's like, you can't just hover back and forth a foot or two one way at the end of the keyboard. Right. The horse had to walk to whatever end where the letters were at. And how would it do that if it's just randomly doing that? and then. Mrs. Fonda is sending a cue right at that moment that she's supposed to hit her nose on the pad. Yeah. Secondly, it kind of goes along the lines that uh, it, it's amazing uh, possible telepathy where Millborn Christopher gives Claudia Fonda the fake name John
1: Banks and the horse is still able to suss that out. The wrong name. You and I are seeing this two different ways, though. I mean, you're seeing that as amazing, but I'm seeing it as like, no, he told, a, he gave Fonda a fake name and she cued the horse to say the fake name because she didn't know his real name. Whereas if the horse was psychic, then the horse would have said his real name. Yes, I see it
2: that way, absolutely. What I'm saying, though, is if there is some kind of uh, cueing going on, then uh, even if it's mechanical, that's amazing that the horse is picking that up because it's it's so subtle that most everyone isn't, except for maybe these stage magicians, and they're seeing, again, the writing down to the pencil and all that. That means the horse is picking that up, or Mrs. Fonda is aware of these stage tricks, these mentalism tricks, and she's picking that up
1: mm-hmm.
2: and transmitting that to the horse with another set of very subtle signals. Or if the horse is using telepathy of some kind,
1: it's reading Mrs. Fonda's mind and picking up the wrong name. Right. But what he's thinking by pointing that out was that I gave it the wrong name, and then she's signaling the horse the wrong name. Yes, that's absolutely the... But you're uh, seeing it, you're right though, you can see it the other way, is that if the horse is reading her mind, and that's the only name she knows, then it's a victory the other way. Yes, but that can't be proven. Of course, uh, in this argument here, the most (laughs) easy and
2: likely scenario is that she is a really good stage magician. And she's able to subtly signal the horse, and maybe unconsciously maybe you could, you could take that route there, as with uh beautiful Jim Key or clever Hans somehow intentionally or unintentionally, the animal is so intuitive it's picking up cues that maybe even the owner is not aware of, so which was also pretty amazing, but yes, yeah, so that's the uh I think the skeptical point, but again, it doesn't cover everything when you ask it a question that only you know and the horse guesses.
1: That's so random. It was identifying people's maiden names. It was identifying the names of their mothers. It was finding lost children. Where is that stuff coming from? (laughs) That's not a sway and bob technique. Yeah. And that's the thing, a lot of times I think- It doesn't cover that. Right. With these skeptical investigations, they look at one part of the system, and if they think they can come up with an alternative explanation for it, Right. It almost arbitrarily seems that because you have found a mundane way that this could also be done, the mundane way supersedes the more surprising or paranormal way, just on the grounds that it's mundane and you can put your hand on it, whereas it's only solving part of the question. It's only answering part of the question. And how does it get to be automatically more important than the other theory, uh, just because it conforms to your... Worldview better, which we could say we were doing the other way, I guess. But,
2: you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's something you can't consider because it's uh, not measurable, it's incalculable. So uh, it's like what Michael Shermer said. We've mentioned this before that's the 10, 15, 20% that truly can't be explained. And you put that aside because there's no way of looking at it. And then you take what's left. And in this case, it's like, okay, the lucky guesses of where missing children are. Your maiden name, a, a name of somebody you've not told Mrs. Fonda about that she possibly couldn't know herself. Frances, the girlfriend in the other state. Yeah, all these things. We don't know. Those are just coincidences. Those are just lucky guesses. And you set those aside because that's not part of the equation. You take it off the table and then you look at everything else because it is easier to do. You're capable of now seeing of, of there's got to be like, again, there's no magic to a stage magician. There's a trick to it. And so with these other animals, yeah, there probably is. I think what I'm saying is that with Lady Wonder, there is something else going on that's beyond that.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not sure how long this show's going to wind up edited, but <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly certain that we have successfully beaten a dead horse here.
2: Oh my um, goodness, you you went there. <laughs> uh, secondly, you know what? Uh, Scott and I do this a lot, and and I uh, honestly, we never really know. This one was going to be like, well, this will be light and fun. It's yeah. like, boy, I hope we got an hour and twenty minutes out of this. It's yeah. like we we didn't have all these things. You're kind of worried that man, this is going to be kind of too light and uh, and you know not our brand. <laughs> and then uh, it's like, well, we could squeeze it out. And we got uh, we could talk more about conclusions at the end, and this will be interesting
1: and then you start finding other things, we're very sorry. And to that point, I want to get to the to my conclusions, yeah. which I actually wrote ahead of time. So I'm just going to uh, share those now. Lady Wonder was profoundly connected with Claudia Fonda, but was it psychic? I don't think Lady Wonder knew anything, but they did experiments with Fonda out of the room, and she still responded, not as good as she did when she was in the room, but still yeah. pretty good. But I think maybe Lady Wonder was able to track every little movement and thing that Claudia Fonda did. She was descended from a long line of thoroughbreds, supposedly. It's possible she had keen powers of observation. My own dog seems psychic to me, but I don't think she is. She's just keenly aware of what I'm going to do before I do it, because all she does is sit around and stare at me or my wife (laughs) all day long. And she knows when we're going to feed her before we do, just like I'm sure your pets do. And she knows that a walk is coming before I put my shoes on. There's something that I'm doing, that I don't even yeah. know what it is, that tells her I'm about to put my shoes on, which will right. likely lead to a walk. Because I can glance over at her, and I can see her. She might be sitting on the couch, but she's doing that thing like, we're about to go for a walk, aren't we? And yeah. I, I maybe I haven't even gotten up. I haven't even gotten out of the chair. I don't know what she's sensing there. So is that psychic? Maybe in a way, but it's not telepathic, I don't think. I think it's intuition that far supersedes human intuition, maybe. Yeah. And, and you've taken care of her. I mean, you know that there's a, she's very easy to communicate with. Oh,
2: absolutely. No, she's a sweetheart. It's some obvious things, like if I, uh, when it's time for me to stop house-sitting and I get out my bag, or I'm folding clothes, that's a signal like, oh, you're going to leave me here, and they're never coming back, and I'm going to starve here. I don't know where the treats are. I don't know how to get to them. Obviously, there are major cues like that, where, like you said, if you guys get out suitcases, she starts freaking out. Yes. But then there's subtle things. It's like, if you're watching TV on the couch, and you shift, like, maybe get up, or she notices that you put your left foot down on the floor as you're going to get up. And most of the times when you get up, you're going into the kitchen and you might drop a pepperoni or something. Yeah, And, you know, and so, yeah, a lot of it's food-based, a lot of it's uh, 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 abandonment, uh, fear-based, and so they're very attuned to things. But let me propose to you things that are beyond seeing those visual cues. And I just now thought about this. I'll make it quick. The first one uh, involves my family. So we had a a cockatiel. We've had two of them. And the first one we had really loved my grandmother. It was said that she was really good with birds. Like they they just responded to her. I mean, we had a good relationship, but he'd get cranky and he'd scream at me. And uh, he always loved her though. And what we knew for certain was that five minutes before my grandparents showed up, drove up, you could even see them like a block away the bird would go nuts. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, maybe they could hear. I mean, their hearing's good. Not as good as a dog's, I don't think. Could they see them? No. But he would start to get all excited and climb the cage walls and and go do his happy dance and get nuts. (laughs) And then a few minutes later, grandma would show up. It's not like he could hear the car coming down the road 10 seconds into the future before they got here. This was like a, a minute or two. Yeah. And we just knew that the grandparents were showing up. So... I don't know what was going on there. The more remarkable one with our family is they had a house cat that they would take out to the, the summer river house. And one year the cat decided like, I like it out here. I like chasing wild game. Uh, I'm suited to this. I'll see you folks later. I don't want to go back into town. And he took off a few days before they were uh, going to pack up for the winter and go back into town. So you could say that the cat picked up that, like, oh, they're cleaning up, maybe it looks like they're getting ready to leave for the winter, the summer's over, I get all these cues and I could see the movements and they're doing the same things of, uh, they're trying to pack and clean and all that. So that's when the cat decided to take off. Well, they were very worried. So they would come back uh, every day for a couple of weeks, my, my grandparents, because the cat ran off and they were saying, you know, my uncle was there all winter long a couple houses down, they said, well, keep an eye on the cat to, you know, if you see him, like try and grab him or coax him in, we're worried because we're not sure he can survive the winter by himself here. So he did. And he said he would see the cat occasionally. It was this black cat, like out tromping in the snow. He said, well, he looks pretty good. He looks healthy. Uh, He doesn't look skinny at all. So he's catching game. He's eating. He just likes being a wild cat. But I was never able to get close to him to, to catch him or anything. I would just see him occasionally every few days and he looked fine. So that went on all winter uh, through deep snow and cold temperatures. And my uncle, who was living out there, said a couple of days before the family went back out for the summer to the river house, the cat showed up and was waiting at the doorstep. Okay. Waiting around the house. So it knew when they were coming back. Which is more of a feat than people leaving. That's what I'm saying is that the cat could pick up cues at like, okay, seems like the family's maybe leaving. How did it know because my, like I said, my uncle didn't interfere. He would just observe the cat. And he said like, yeah, that thing was waiting like a couple of days before you guys showed up for the summer. Does it know the calendar? Right. <laughs> Can it tell that specific days? I'm not even sure it was the same day every year that they showed up, but it showed up a few days before they showed up for the summer to live out there. Yeah. And it kept doing that for the rest of its years. Wow. It would take off like a couple of days or a day before they were going to leave for the winter and it would show up again, like the day before they were going to return. So how would it know when they were returning when there's no cues around? There you go. So those things happen. But I think Lady Wonder was, that was something much more special.
1: Well, coming back around to that and special relationships and the power of observation, coming back to the eyes and what the eye see, I, (laughs) I may have mentioned this on an episode a few weeks ago, but this just happened maybe a month ago. I was uh getting myself ready to go somewhere I'm, I'm in my bathroom not to get too graphic here or whatever but I I noticed that I had this one insane and this is what you get when you get to be our age this mm. one insane like eyebrow hair that was like sticking up and out <laughs> and was also particularly sure. robust and I was like what is that <laughs> so I took you know my wife's tweezers and I was like you're done and I yanked it out Yeah that was it and so then um about I don't know 30 minutes later I go upstairs to my son's room to talk to him, say hello, whatever, I don't know, whatever, I go up there. And he's sitting on the floor on a beanbag about eight feet away from me, and I'm standing in his doorway. And yes, I did the math on this. I did a right Mm -hmm. triangle calculation. I think that my face was probably about 10 feet away from him. He looks up at me from his iPad and just immediately says, did you shave your eyebrow? (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, it's different. And I was just like, Oh, oh my God. And I was like, and, and I'll be clear here. He and I are very, very close. And when I'm sure, not sure. working, we're hanging out. But I never dreamed he was studying me that closely. And the way, what this made me think about, yeah. I can see Claudia, and it's one of the things that we've found in our research. You remember saying that um, Claudia and Clarence didn't have kids of their own. She clearly was very close to Lady Wonder. It may have been a really, really close, affectionate, relationship between her and Lady Wonder, and they're spending all yeah. this time together, especially with all these people coming to visit, and this system is developing. And I think it's possible that Claudia, as well as the scientists, uh, they might have vastly underestimated how powerfully perceptive Lady Wonder was when it came to mm-hmm. her and her body yeah. language. Right. But then if we look at that second Rhine and Rhine study, nothing was working. It was as if Mm -hmm. Claudia had overthought things, like I said earlier, which upset the delicate balance of what they'd accomplished. So once she read Ryan's report herself and saw what they did when they were there, she probably began to second guess her body language and what it was she was doing with the whip. If she wasn't doing it all on purpose, now she's probably starting to try to think, what am I doing that's sending these signals? And then she might have started thinking, how can I train for this? How can I make it better? And when she did that, she made it worse. Mm -hmm. Because that was only six months later. So, But then after that report, she must have gotten better because Lady Wonder continued to astound people for 30 more years. And there's another thing I want to point out about the skeptical viewpoint that you read. That was 1957. Lady Wonder was freaking like 31 years old at that point. Yeah, she was going to pass away within a year when they're going to debunk her. It's like, give me a break. She should be in a home. So that's another thing I want to say about that. (laughs) She's tired, yes. So we come down to whether or not the horse could read or do math, but Claudia could, and Claudia subconsciously may have guided Lady Wonder to the right answers, but that still does not explain the unbelievable feats. Mm -hmm. As I said a minute ago, she was guessing women's maiden names, the names of folks' mothers, uh, the year on the coin pulled from the pocket, and most significantly, where poor Danny Matson's drowned body could be found at the bottom of a flooded and abandoned rock quarry. I think to get to those answers, Lady Wonder, no, she wasn't a psychic horse. This is a more complex event. I think that Claudia Fonda was psychic, and Lady Wonder responded to Claudia's cues. And Claudia supposedly denied psychic ability, but think of this, she may have been scared of it, she might have had religious fears or been worried about being branded some kind of witch or something else. What better way to divert attention from herself to something else than to send her answers through Lady Wonder, who was already hanging on the slightest environmental change in body language from Claudia? Now, if Claudia were doing this consciously, having uh, Doctors Ryan and Ryan come and do all those experiments would have stood to teach her how to make it all work better. Here they are testing the horse and along the way giving Claudia a master's degree in methods to get her messages through to Lady Wonder. Now one of our clippings said Lady Wonder only took visitors four days a week. That leaves three for Claudia and her to potentially work on their craft and complete privacy. So the only problem with this theory for a lot of you out there is probably that you don't believe in psychics. Well if that's the case then that means that picking all the fights, naming the next president, finding Danny Matson's body, and everything else was luck and law of averages, maybe so. So many people invoke Occam's razor, uh, which actually says, entities should not be multiplied without necessity. Or, as you've probably heard it paraphrased, the simplest solution is most likely the right one. Those with a skeptical viewpoint around the world invoke this phrase ad nauseum to shoot down a lot of the kinds of stories we cover, but the funny thing about this is that the author of Occam's Razor, William of Occam, was a Franciscan friar who came up with the concept to defend divine miracles. I didn't know that until I started writing this conclusion, but if I did, Mm -hmm. or maybe I did, I'd forgotten it, but it fits uh, perfectly with my thoughts on the case of Lady Wonder. If you believe a person can be psychic, then the simplest explanation is actually that Lady Wonder could read the slightest bodily clues from Claudia Fonda, sent subconsciously or not. And as a result, she was nothing more than a conduit for a message, a message she did not comprehend, but that was right nonetheless. The occasional sloppiness in answers attributed to miscommunication or misinterpretation of Claudia Fonda's behavior. Now, I can't tell you whether Claudia knew if she was psychic or not, but I think she probably did know, and for whatever reason, she wanted to deflect that.
2: Well, my friend, very well thought out, conclusive thoughts. (laughs) And completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Your thought out thoughts. No, I uh, have, yeah, I have uh, really nothing to go against. I think it's everything that we should consider uh, in uh, the course and breadth of what we do here on the show. Of course, that does not jibe with people who take things off the table or, or don't even allow certain things on the table because it's ridiculous to them, like psychic ability. But I'll say something quickly about that here. I've known several people personally in my life, uh, known them fairly well, and they thought all psychic ability was just baloney. Like, if you claimed you had that, like, maybe you were a decent person, maybe you're a charlatan, you're probably crazy, though, regardless, is that you're just, you're misguided, you think you you can see into the future, you can read people's minds. And as long as you're not harming me, breaking my arm or picking my pocket, as Tom Jefferson might say, you are harmless, but you also should be washed because you're nuts and you shouldn't be telling people you have psychic ability. There's just no way that can happen. And a lot of them, though, uh, I would say people who are skeptical that I know personally about it, just don't think about it. It's just not a consideration. They're fine if you talk about it, but they, they don't want to hear too much about it. And so you don't talk about it. But what I will say is I also have had several friends that thought that way, that people who claim psychic abilities or even something that was like a premonition or anything like that and didn't claim it, just like had this weird experience where they had a premonition and it came true or they had a psychic thought and that came true or they had some uh, precognition. Something happened that was outside of the norm. It's like, well, they're a decent person, but they probably just misinterpreted that. And it was just purely coincidence. So we'll leave it at that. If they were to go on with it, or a stranger told that to them, then that stranger's nuts. You're nuts. That can't happen. It's just ridiculous. So again, I know several people like that until something happened to them. And that's always the case with the paranormal and the supernatural. And I get it. It's hard to wrap your head around that stuff. It seems ridiculous. It should be ridiculous. But sometimes it's not. And the only way that you know that it's not is because somebody you don't know very well, and probably a stranger, told you something that you cannot deny. And there is no possible way on earth that they knew that. And it is so random and so out there. And we'd be a a, a billion to one guess from a stranger that told you something that rocked your world. And I know people that uh, they've broken down into tears. I've known people that they were afraid of what this person told them. I know others that, uh, that heard something and they had to change their whole belief on it. And gradually, and, and uh, that's the better outcome, I think, it's like, well, maybe there is something to that. I may have to change and open up my thinking. And I think that's a great thing. I think where people are very scared of it, like, yeah, I wish that that didn't happen because I don't think it's anything to be scared of. I think it's just part of the human experience. Now, when it comes to Claudia Fonda and Lady Wonder, I think there was a human-animal bond there between owner and pet or human being and horse that was so deep that any little perception was picked up on, especially by Lady Wonder. But here's my crazy way out theory about how that worked, is that, yes, you could say, Claudia was psychic and she knew that there was a connection to the horse and she was kind of beaming these telepathic thoughts. As we said earlier, that's the fun part of it. It's like, well, she's the horse isn't really psychic, it's just telepathic, which is still amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but Claudia was able to use that to get the horse to do things and to make choices. But then you got to wonder, there are answers that Claudia shouldn't have known herself, logically, unless she was this massive genius and just knew everything and then could feed that to the horse with subtle cues. So you have to look at that aspect of it. Or you could say that she didn't know she was psychic, but somehow it worked, and there was some Akashic record uh, file keeping and accessing going on there that allowed Lady Wonder to draw the answers from somewhere. And like everyone else, like Casey himself, he he wasn't always accurate. Some things have not come to pass. People have tried to stump him by having him do readings on dead people. And he gave the readings as the same, but uh, you know that could be explained by the believer is like, well, you're looking at somebody who was alive, who maybe did have this condition while they were alive, but now they're dead. And when are you looking at someone in time? So who knows? There's all kinds of explanations for and against accuracy and missing answers with this. But here's my kind of whacked out theory about how this might work. I believe the two of them, either consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously, were connected, and they operated as a unit, together as one, that Claudia would not be that psychic on her own. She's not able to guess and precognate and do all these things of, uh, of psychic ability without Lady Wonder. And I'm not sure that she knew that. I think that, like you said, she might have been afraid of it. I'm not sure if it was a trick to just have a carnival act in her barn. I think it may have been unknown to both of them, but it required both of them. Lady Wonder had to go into some kind of a trance to act as a transmitter, and the both of them somehow opened up a channel between the two of them and keyed off of each other, and that's how this thing worked. And I realize that sounds really, really woo woo and wacko, but there's something to this when you, when you look at it. It's so strange. And like I said, it, it can be just a fluff piece and a, and a crazy carnival horse that, that guessed numbers, or it could be an example of something far beyond our current understanding when it comes to psychic powers. Well, whatever was at work here, there's no question that Lady Wonder and Claudia Fonda had an extraordinary relationship that confounds people to this day. Lady Wonder ended up passing away on March 19, 1957, at the age of 33 from a heart attack, three years after she had herself predicted. Claudia Fonda erected a monument to her longtime companion shortly after that, but she would die just two years later. Lady Wonder is buried at Henrico County's Pet Memorial Park on Terrell Street in Richmond, Virginia. About 25 people attended the funeral. And news of her passing made the front page of Richmond's News Leader newspaper with the headline Richmond's Famous Mind Reading Horse, the City's Psychic Mare. And whatever you believe she was or wasn't, she was an astonishing legend in her own time. <laughs>
1: That's going to wrap up our series on Lady Wonder, the mind-reading horse. We're dark the next three weeks, but we'll be publishing some stuff to the feed to keep you guys entertained.
2: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket
1: Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Renata. I'm Bamashockz, And I give
0: permission to Astonishing Astonishing Legends.
1: B-A-M-A-S-H-O-C-K-Z. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is
2: also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter,
1: Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good
0: night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.